3. The Golden Penetrators. Instilling Fear. Maybe I was naive to think I could discover what was going on at the Tate House in the months before the murders. People had been trying to untangle that rat's nest of rumors for 30 years, and not with a magazine deadline looming in front of them. Now I'd determined to my satisfaction that Frakowski and Polanski had a lot to hide. And that their connections to the drug trade could have put them plausibly in Manson's orbit. Beyond that, my sense of Manson's link to Hollywood was still too tenuous for my liking. And if I felt that Bugliosi's helter skelter motive was only a high profile contrivance, I needed to find the bald truth it concealed. Hoping for a better angle, I focused on the one figure who was among the most perplexing in the case. Terry Melcher. Without Melcher, there would have been no murders at 10050 Cielo Drive. He was the clearest link between Manson and the Hollywood elite. A music industry bigwig, he'd promised Manson a record deal only to renege on it. The official story was that Manson, reeling from the rejection, wanted to instill fear in Melcher. So he chose Melcher's old house on Cielo Drive as the site for the first night of murders. He knew that Melcher didn't live there anymore. He just wanted to give the guy a good scare. This was a vital point in the case. According to Bugliosi, Manson never went to the house the night of the murders. He just sent his followers there and told them to kill anyone they found. To convict Manson of criminal conspiracy, then, And get him a death sentence? Bugliosi had to establish a compelling, premeditated reason that Manson had picked the Cielo Drive home. Terry Melcher was that reason. Melcher testified that he'd met Manson exactly three times, the last of which was around May 20, 1969, more than two months before the murders. After Manson's arrest, Melcher became so frightened of the family that Bugliosi had to give him a tranquilizer to relax him before he testified. Ten, fifteen years after the murders, I'd speak to him, and he was still convinced that the Manson family was after him that night, Bugliosi had told me. If Manson had wanted to kill Melcher, he could have. He had Melcher's new address in Malibu. Greg Jacobson, a musician and a friend of the Beach Boys, Had testified at the trial that Manson called him before the murders, asking him if Melcher had a green spyglass. Yes. Why? Jacobson answered. Well, he doesn't anymore, Manson said. The family had creepy crawled Melcher's Malibu home. That's what they called it when they dressed up in black and sneaked around rich people's places and stolen the spyglass. When Melcher himself testified, He confirmed that he'd noticed it missing around late July or early August. Candace Bergen, his girlfriend, had noted the disappearance too. Over the years, Manson researchers have generally agreed that Melcher was stretching the truth. Karina Longworth, whose podcast, You Must Remember This, devoted a whole season to Manson, said in one episode that Melcher was vague about the details of his meetings with Manson. And probably shaved a couple of visits to the ranch off the official record. It would be one thing to fudge the numbers a bit. It's easy to see why someone would want to understate their relationship with Charles Manson. But I became convinced that this was graver than that. I found proof that Melcher was much closer to Manson, Tex Watson, and the girls than he'd suggested. A year before the murders, He'd even lived with a member of the family at the house on Cielo Drive. There was a strong likelihood that Melcher knew, immediately after the crimes, that Manson was involved. But he never told the police. I found evidence that Melcher lied on the stand, under oath. And Bugliosi definitely knew about it. Maybe he'd even put him up to it, suborning witness perjury. Just like the omissions about Polanski's sex tape and Frakowski's episode with Billy Doyle, this raised questions about Bugliosi's motives. Did he change the story to protect Melcher?
a powerful record producer and the only child of one of Hollywood's most beloved stars? Had he streamlined certain elements for the jury's sake, in the interest of getting an easy conviction? Or was this part of a broader pattern of deception, of bending the facts to support a narrative that was otherwise too shaky to stand? Helter-skelter the motive and helter-skelter the book seemed more illusory by the day. Chasing the Melcher angle further imperiled any chance of hitting my deadline. It soured my relationship with Bugliosi. It brought on the first of many lawsuit threats. And it turned my fascination with the case into a full-blown obsession. But it convinced me more than anything that I was onto something. That the full story behind the Manson murders had never been properly told. I live with 17 girls. The story of Manson and Melcher starts with Dennis Wilson. By the summer of 1968, Wilson, then 23, had reached an impasse. He'd become world famous as the drummer for the Beach Boys, helmed by his brother Brian. Now the band was in decline, edged out by more subversive acts. He and his wife Carol had recently divorced for the second time. She wrote in court filings that he had a violent temper, inflicting severe bodily injury on her during his rampages. The couple had two young children, but Dennis decided to rusticate as a bachelor. He moved into a lavish, Spanish-style mansion in Pacific Palisades, once a hunting lodge owned by the humorist Will Rogers. The home boasted 31 rooms and a swimming pool in the shape of California. He redecorated in the spirit of the times. Zebra print carpet, abundant bunk beds, and hosted decadent parties, hoping to have as much sex as possible. One day, Wilson was driving his custom red Ferrari down the Pacific Coast Highway when two hitchhikers, the families Ella Jo Bailey and Patricia Krenwinkle, caught his eye. He gave them a quick lift. When he saw them again soon afterward, he picked them up a second time, taking them back to his place for milk and cookies. History hasn't recorded what kind of cookies they enjoyed, or whether those cookies were in fact sex, but whatever the case, the girls told Manson about the encounter. They weren't aware of Wilson's clout in the music industry, but Manson was, and he insisted on going back to the house with them. After a late recording session, Wilson returned to his estate to find the family's big black bus parked outside. His living room was populated with topless girls. Whatever alarm he felt was eased when their short, intense, unwashed leader Manson sunk to his knees and kissed Wilson's feet. This night ushered in a summer of ceaseless partying for Wilson. Manson and the family set up shop in his home. And soon Manson recruited one of the group's deadliest members, Tex Watson, who picked him up hitchhiking. The family spent their days smoking dope and listening to Charlie strum the guitar. The girls made the meals, did the laundry, and slept with the men on command. Manson prescribed sex seven times a day, before and after all three meals, and once in the middle of the night. It was as if we were kings. Just because we were men, Watson later wrote. Soon Wilson was bragging so much that he landed a headline in Record Mirror. I live with 17 girls. Talking to Britain's Rave magazine, Wilson offered disjointed remarks about his new friend, whom he called the Wizard. I was only frightened as a child because I didn't understand the fear, he said. Sometimes the Wizard frightens me. The wizard is Charles Manson, who is a friend of mine who thinks he is God and the devil. He sings, plays and writes poetry, and maybe another artist for Brother Records, the Beach Boys label. This last bit excited Manson, who was desperate to leverage his connection with Wilson into a music career. The two co-wrote a song, Cease to Exist, whose lyrics claimed that submission is a gift, Later that year, the Beach Boys recorded it as a B-side, changing the title, finessing the lyrics, and dropping Manson's songwriting credit. 
a snub that fueled his anger toward the establishment. Manson fraternized with some of the biggest names in music. Neil Young remembered meeting him and the girls at Wilson's place. A lot of pretty well-known musicians around L.A. knew Manson, Young later said, though they'd probably deny it now. Among these was Terry Melcher. He and Wilson had pledged allegiance to the Golden Penetrators, a horny triumvirate they'd formed with their friend Greg Jacobson. The Penetrators, who'd painted a car gold to celebrate themselves, aimed to sleep with as many women as they could. Wilson's ex-wife referred to them as roving coxmen. Obviously, then, Melcher would want to rove over to Wilson's house. It was full of promiscuous young women. Sometime in that summer of 68, at one of Wilson's marathon parties, he crossed paths with Manson for the first time. After another such party, Melcher rode back to Cielo Drive with Wilson, and Manson came along in the back seat. As Melcher later testified, Manson got a good look at the house from the driveway. When the end of summer came, things went south with Wilson, who'd finally grown tired of footing the bill for the endless party, upward of $100,000 in food, clothes, and car repairs, plus gonorrhea treatments. According to Bugliosi, Wilson was too frightened of Manson to throw him out. Instead, he simply up and left in the middle of the night, leaving the messy business of eviction to his landlord. But it must have been more complicated than that. Wilson gave three interviews in which he raved about Manson and the girls, and all of those interviews date to the winter and summer of 1969, nearly a year after he and the family had supposedly parted ways. Why would Wilson brag about his connections to a man he'd just schemed to escape? The only sure fact is that Manson and his group decamped to the Spahn Ranch in late August 1968. Wilson moved into a Malibu beach house with Greg Jacobson, who'd also recently split from his marriage. Having drifted from Wilson, his best shot at a record deal, Manson knew he had to hitch his wagon to Terry Melcher's star. As his chances at fame dwindled, his mood darkened. He became obsessed with the Beatles' White Album, released in late November 1968, and started to preach about the prophecies of a race war embedded in its lyrics. Things only got worse in the winter of 69, when he arranged for Melcher to come out and hear his music. Manson prepared meticulously for the prospective meeting, but Melcher stood him up. On March 23, a desperate Manson went searching for Melcher, thinking he'd goad the producer into a record deal. He found his way back to the house at Cielo Drive, having remembered that Melcher lived there. Instead, Sharon Tate's personal photographer, Sharo Katami, intercepted him. Katami had never heard of a Terry Melcher. He told Manson to go to the guest house and ask the owner of the property, Rudolf Altabelli, who explained curtly that Melcher no longer lived there and hadn't left a forwarding address. Manson prevailed on Greg Jacobson, still a friend and still a fan of the girls, to book another session with Melcher. This time it worked. That May, Melcher made the winding drive to the Spahn Ranch and auditioned Manson in person, visiting twice over four days. Manson had rounded out a dozen or so of his best songs with backup singing from the girls. Performing in a gully in the woods, the girls sprawled on the ground and gazed up at their leader, who sat astride a rock with his guitar. I wasn't too impressed by the songs, Melcher would later testify. I was impressed by the whole scene, by Charlie's strength and his obvious leadership. As a courtesy, the producer complimented Manson, saying that one or two of his songs were nice. He had no intention of offering a recording contract, but he saw how the family's rustic, cultish lifestyle would lend itself to a TV documentary. Melcher suggested that his friend Mike Deasy, whose van was outfitted to make field recordings, could come out to the ranch and capture another performance. Before Melcher could get out of there, 
a foreman at the ranch came stumbling out of a pickup truck. Drunk and belligerent, he was dressed like a cowboy, fingering a holstered gun. The same one that would later be used at the Tate murders. Manson stepped up to him and shouted, Don't draw on me, motherfucker, socking him in the gut, taking his gun, and continuing to pummel him. It spooked Melcher. Here was a peace and love cult with naked girls roaming the old western sets, and yet the constant threat of violence loomed over the place. It needed to be documented in all its oddity. A few days later, Melcher returned with Deasy and Jacobson, and the family repeated their audition. But what had seemed spontaneous now felt rehearsed. Deasy returned a few more times, until he had a frightening LSD trip with Manson and vowed never to go back. It was all getting too toxic. Melcher conveyed his rejection through Jacobson, and that was the end of that. Manson's last brush with greatness was gone, and he became full-on apocalyptic. Melcher never went back to the ranch or saw anyone from the family again. Or so he said under oath, anyway. After the murders, as Hollywood panicked and the LAPD chased down leads, the Golden Penetrators realized that they hadn't quite washed their hands of Manson. This is where their story began to feel unbelievable to me. Manson wasn't charged with murder until late November. But Wilson, Jacobson, and Melcher had good cause to suspect him back in August, right after the killings. By then, they were frightened of Manson, though Helter Skelter does little to indicate their terror. When I saw how much they knew, and how quiet they'd kept, when their information would have helped police solve the case, I realized just how flimsy the helter-skelter motive was. Its unforgettable grandiosity may have hidden a more prosaic truth, that a few rich guys had gotten in over their heads with an unstable ex-con. First, Wilson and Jacobson knew that Manson had shot a black man named Bernard Crow about five weeks before the Tate murders. And Jacobson, who testified that he'd talked to Manson upward of a hundred times, was well acquainted with his friend's bizarre race war predictions. Manson warned him that whiteies in the affluent homes of Bel Air would be cut up and dismembered, and that the murderers would smear the victim's blood on the walls, scatter their limbs, and hang them from the ceiling. And yet, when a group of affluent whites really was cut up, and Sharon Tate was hanged from the ceiling of her home in Bel Air, Jacobson apparently didn't make the connection. Nor did it occur to him in mid-August, when he witnessed Manson's violence firsthand. Manson broke into Jacobson's home in the middle of the night, shook him awake, and produced a bullet. Tell Dennis there are more where this came from, he said. On the witness stand, Jacobson compared Manson that night to a caged bobcat. The electricity was almost pouring out of him. His hair was on end. His eyes were wild. A few days earlier, Manson had shown up at Wilson's house, too, demanding $1,500. When Wilson refused to give him the money, Manson threatened him. Don't be surprised if you never see your kid again. After Manson's arrest, Wilson fell into a deep depression, spurring his problems with drugs and alcohol. Later, he told the Beach Boys' authorized biographer, David Leaf, I know why Charles Manson did what he did. Someday I'll tell the world. I'll write a book and explain why he did it. He never got the chance. In 1983, three weeks after his 39th birthday, an acutely drunk Wilson dove from the deck of his boat into the chilly waters of Marina del Rey and accidentally drowned. Within days, a rock journalist wrote in the San Francisco Chronicle about a jarring exchange he'd had with Wilson. Me and Charlie, we founded the family, Dennis had said. Apropos of nothing. The Golden Penetrators, then, had an abundance of reasons to accuse Manson of the Tate-LaBianca murders. Immediately. They believed he'd shot someone dead. 
He'd threatened two of them with violence. They knew he stockpiled guns and knives at the ranch. And the slaughter at Melcher's old house was exactly the kind he'd predicted, down to the most chilling detail. Shouldn't they have connected the dots? Was it possible that there was a conspiracy of silence among them? Asshole Buddies Rudy Altabelli, the owner of the house on Cielo Drive, Tate and Polanski's landlord, and Terry Melcher's before that, became one of my best sources. It was thanks to him that I started looking into Melcher's story in the first place. When I met up with Altabelli in the spring of 1999, he'd never publicly spoken about the murders that had occurred at his house, except in trial testimony. I wasn't sure why he'd agreed to talk now, and to me of all people. I'd heard it would be a waste of time even to bother asking. But Altabelli had always been unpredictable. One of the first openly gay men in Hollywood, he'd made a living as a manager, his clients including Henry Fonda and Catherine Hepburn. In November 1969, three months after the murders, before the killers had been found, he shocked the community by filing a lawsuit against Polanski and Sharon Tate's father to recover the damages his property had sustained during the murders. It was an appallingly callous response to seek money from a victim's family because she'd bled on Altabelli's carpet as she lay dying. I knew then that I'd have to tread carefully with Altabelli. True to old Hollywood form, he suggested we meet at Musso and Frank Grill, a legendary outpost that looked right out of a film noir. Many of its red-jacketed waiters seemed so old that they could have been working there when it opened in 1919. One of them led me through the wood-paneled room past red banquettes to Altabelli at a corner table, already treating himself to the first in a succession of Gibsons, with extra onions. Compact and nattily dressed, he was a few weeks shy of his 70th birthday, but he had no lines on his face and no gray in his hair. Admittedly vain, he'd begin all our meetings by asking, How do I look? It came before hello. His glasses were always tinted, on some days blue, on others pink, orange, or light purple. After dinner that night, he kept calling to chat, and I took him out for years to come. The restaurants were always fancy. The bills were always mine. And I always felt, through hundreds of hours of conversation, that I wasn't getting the whole story. His go-to defense was unchanging. I may not tell you everything, but I have never lied to you. Robert Town, who wrote the screenplay for Chinatown, called Altabelli the most honest man in Hollywood. A low bar to clear, maybe, but I'd take what I could get. If I printed anything without his permission, he said, I'll find you and cut your balls off and feed them to you. Fortunately, he later decided it was all on the record. Altabelli had bought the Cielo house in 1963. In May 1966, he rented to Terry Melcher, who was known at the time for having produced the birds Mr. Tambourine Man and Turn, Turn, Turn. Altabelli liked to befriend his tenants. He'd live in the guest house and rent out the main property. And soon the two became what he called asshole buddies. An affectionate term, he assured me. Not only was Altabelli one of the few people who'd befriended both Melcher and Tate, he was one of the few who'd seen Manson on the property before the murders. He provided critical testimony for the state, identifying Manson as the man who'd barged into his guest house looking for Terry Melcher on March 23, 1969. His ID was reliable. He'd already met Manson at Dennis Wilson's house the summer before. He'd sat on Dennis's bed atop a dirty satin sheet with cum spots on it, Rudy told me while Manson sat on the floor playing music. I didn't like the vibe from him, Rudy added. I even told Terry to keep those people off the property. It sounded like Altabelli, 
and others in his circle had suspected Manson from the start. And that was true, Altabelli said. When he heard about the murders, he thought of Manson right away. Altabelli was in Rome at the time, and his memories troubled him enough that within hours of the murders, before he'd even boarded a flight home, he called his lawyer Barry Hirsch, who told him he should mind his own business. Altabelli returned to Los Angeles hoping to move back into his house right away. The LAPD forbade him. Instead, he crashed with Melcher and Candace Bergen at their place in Malibu. That house belonged to Doris Day, Melcher's mother, but she seldom used it. During Altabelli's stay, Greg Jacobson stopped by and invited him for a walk on the beach. As they strolled along the surf, past beautiful oceanfront homes, fortified in recent weeks with fences, guard dogs, and security systems, Jacobson told him about the musician that Manson was supposed to have killed. Altabelli didn't remember the musician's name. I wondered if he was thinking of Gary Hinman, a musician who'd been killed by the family 13 days before the Tate-LaBianca murders. If Jacobson knew about that murder, he would have almost certainly connected the Tate-LaBianca deaths to Manson, too. That day on the beach, Jacobson reached into his pocket and pulled out a bullet. He said, this one's for Terry. It was from Manson. This strained credulity. As mentioned moments ago, during the trial, Jacobson had said that after the murders, Manson broke into his house, gave him a bullet, and told him to show it to Dennis Wilson. The message? There are more where this came from. Maybe Altabelli was getting all of it mixed up? But he was insistent. No, he said it was for Terry. Then why didn't he tell Terry about it? Because when I'm told to mind my own business by my attorney, I mind my own business. In fact, I should be minding my own business now and shut up. How could Altabelli have spent so much time with Melcher, doing nothing but discussing the tragedy and speculating on possible culprits, without sharing this crucial information, without telling his friend that there was a bullet with his name on it. He knew it would have helped solve the case. Altabelli did say that he called his attorney one more time to fill him in. He was told, again, to mind his own business. Hirsch declined to comment. If Altabelli was telling the truth, then all four of these men, him, Melcher, Wilson, and Jacobson, the main links between Manson, Hollywood, and the house on Cielo Drive had to know that Manson was behind the murders. And yet all they wanted to do was forget about it. Three weeks after the crimes, Altabelli moved back into the house on Cielo Drive with Melcher as his new roommate, an arrangement that's never been reported before. Altabelli returned out of a desire to reclaim his home from the evil that had infested it. He hoped to restore some order to the place. By then, it had become a morbid mecca for Hollywood's elite, who came by wanting a glimpse at the scene of the crimes. Even Elvis Presley came to pay his respects. Altabelli turned most of these visitors away. But he welcomed Melcher, who'd expressed a bizarre yearning to stay in his old place again. With Altabelli's blessing, Melcher lived there for a month, maybe longer. He hardly left the property. He probably figured it was safe there, Altabelli said, that lightning wouldn't strike twice. Melcher came alone. He seemed to have split up with Bergen. Settling back into the house, he became morose, as Altabelli remembered, wandering around in a daze and drinking heavily. Another friend, the screenwriter Charles Eastman, who lived several doors down on Cielo Drive, said that Melcher showed up at his place wearing Wojtek Frakowski's clothing. I said, this is too gruesome. This is ugly. I don't like this. Melcher was living out his attachment to the place in macabre ways. He felt, as everybody did, that the house was sacred, Eastman said. He loved it so much that he'd even tried to talk Altabelli into selling it to him. Which made me wonder... Why had he and Bergen ever moved out?
Bugliosi hinted in Helter Skelter that their departure was abrupt, but he never said why. They left in the middle of the night, with no warning and four months left on the lease, Altabelli told me. Terry blamed it on Ruth Simmons, their housekeeper. He said they were frightened of her, that she was domineering and a drunk, that it was the only way they knew to get rid of her. Melcher and Bergen, both privileged children of Hollywood royalty, were so frightened of a housekeeper that they'd sooner move out of a house they loved than fire her. A power couple, scared of the maid. Eastman was convinced that something else was to blame. Melcher knew that Manson was after him. Altabelli and Melcher were always being pestered by strange visitors, girls with funny names, he said. My feeling was that Rudy and Terry both had reason to be uncomfortable about Manson and his people. Eastman had even written about it in his journal in March 1969. He read the entry to me. Rudy criticizes Terry for leaving behind so many cats when he moved. When I asked him why Terry moved, he tells me it was money, that Terry became peeved at the rent. Remembering Terry's love of the house and how many times, according to Rudy, that Terry offered to buy the house from him, it seems odd to me that he moved away so suddenly, so abruptly. None of this had ever come out before. Other friends of Melcher agreed that he and Bergen had snuck out in the middle of the night because of threats from the family. Melcher was afraid of them, one source told me. They said, if you don't produce our album, we'll kill you. After the murders, Melcher seemed really guilty. He probably felt he should have said to the new tenants, Tate and Polanski, don't rent the house. There are these people who have been harassing me there. Altabelli gave me the number for Carol Wilson, Dennis Wilson's ex-wife. It was after their second separation that Dennis had taken up with Manson and the girls, much to Carol's chagrin. The two shared custody of their two kids. Later, I would hear from a reliable source that Carol had had photos taken at Dennis's house, capturing him cavorting naked around the pool with women from the family. She used them to pressure Dennis getting him to agree to her terms in the divorce. Carol kept careful tabs on her ex's goings-on. She kept a diary from the day Dennis first met Tex Watson, Altabelli told me. It has everything in it, everything on Terry. She hates him. Meanwhile, she pursued a romance with Jay Sebring, which I'd never seen reported before. It felt significant in light of the fact that her ex-husband had been intertwined with Sebring's killers. It was just before the weekend when I reached Wilson. I told her that I was exploring the possibility that her former husband and his friends had been more involved with the Manson family than previously reported, and I wondered if Manson's reach in Hollywood was further than had been known. Yes, it sure was, she replied. She asked that I call her back on Monday. We could meet for coffee. When Monday came, though, she'd changed her mind. I thought long and hard over the weekend, she said, and I can't talk to you. There were a lot of people involved, she explained. Too many. It's a scary thing, she said, and anyone who knows anything will never talk. I couldn't draw her out on that. She suggested that I talk to Melcher and Jacobson but she wouldn't put me in touch. Meanwhile, I'd started to hear more sordid stuff about Melcher's affiliation with the family. Bob April, a retired carpenter who'd been a fringe member of the family, told me with confidence that Manson would supply girls for executive parties that Melcher threw, giving well-heeled business types unfettered access to Manson's girls. But what would Manson get in return? That's why everyone got killed, April said. He didn't get what he wanted. Melcher had promised Manson a record deal on Day Labels, his mother's imprint. But Doris Day took one look at Manson and laughed at him and said, You're out of your mind if you think I'm going to produce a fucking record for you. Said it to Charlie's face. Melcher and Manson knew each other very well, April said. I've tried to get this out for years. 
The paper trail begins. I was doing shoe leather reporting on a 30-year-old story. The memories I heard were rife with the omissions, contradictions, and embroidery that come with the passage of time. I would interview people and then rush to the library to fact-check, as best I could, what they'd told me. In books about the case, histories of Los Angeles, biographies of organized crime figures, old news clippings, and more. But if I wanted to report this story with veracity, I needed contemporaneous, documentary evidence. The paperwork. When sources like Charles Eastman would mention having journals, I would beg them to find them, often calling back repeatedly until they did. But first and foremost, I wanted police reports and trial transcripts. The case had been the longest and costliest in California history, and Bugliosi said that the transcript numbered more than a million pages. Where was that? Could I have access to it? The LAPD told me they'd destroyed all their investigative reports. They'd retained some files, but they weren't about to release them to me. How could they have trashed their records of the most infamous case in the history of the city? I didn't believe it. I asked them to put it in writing, and they did, stating in an official letter that a thorough and proper search produced no records, all the evidence had been destroyed. I turned to unofficial channels. I'd heard about a researcher named Bill Nelson, an older man who was obsessed with the murders. He'd self-published several books about the case and had a lot of original police reports. Nelson was purportedly a pretty strange guy. He'd stalked former members of the family and relatives of the victims, trying to befriend them so he could interview them. He'd become close to Sharon Tate's mother Doris, even traveling with her to Paris to visit Roman Polanski. But they'd had some falling out before her death in 1992. I looked at Nelson's website, mansonmurders.com. The fact that he had one at all was still something of a novelty in 1999. Regularly updated with accounts of his crusades, his page included an index of crime scene photos, police documents, and interviews, most of which were for sale. There was also plenty to suggest his instability. A retired evangelical minister, Nelson boasted of a close and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He bragged about having attended the United States Secret Service Academy, where his design for the annual class ring was still in use. His exposés of former family members were vitriolic and often ad hominem. He'd published photographs of some of their children, having stalked them at their homes and schools. But I had to admit that he was a thorough researcher, and I was at a loss as to how I could come by these documents otherwise. I swallowed my pride and sent him an email. We met for coffee at a Denny's in Costa Mesa one afternoon. Across the table, Nelson looked like a retired accountant, mid-sixties, balding, his silver hair neatly combed on the sides. He dressed conservatively, in a button-down shirt and khakis. I paid him 40 bucks for copies of the homicide investigation reports, unredacted and numbering almost a hundred pages. He'd gotten these from Earl Deemer, the cop whose interview with Billy Doyle I discussed earlier. Deemer conducted most of the polygraphs for the Tate investigation and had copied all the police reports, photos, and audio tapes related to the case. How Nelson persuaded him to part with this stuff was a mystery. Some said he bought the files, others that he stole them. He didn't want to tell me, that much was clear. Deemer had since died, and what was left of his records went to Mike McGann, a retired homicide detective who'd been the lead investigator on the Tate team. McGann lived in Idaho now. Nelson gave me his number. Like Ed Sanders and others, Nelson believed that certain elements of law enforcement knew that the Tate-LaBianca murders were planned, or they knew who was behind them. They'd been unable to act because it would have exposed their secret intelligence-gathering operations. 
Nelson had watched nearly every televised interview Manson had ever given. He felt that Manson never lies, he just withholds information. But Manson would never tell the truth about the murders. It would involve snitching, and there was no greater transgression in a criminal's mind. Hearing all this at Denny's made my head hurt, but I felt I had to indulge Nelson. In spite of how far-fetched his theories sounded, some of them resonated with me long after I pulled away from the restaurant that day. Back home, I put on some coffee and pulled out the sheaf of papers I'd just bought, feeling somewhere between eager and anxious. As explained in Helter Skelter, the homicide investigation progress reports were essentially internal summaries. They outlined the detectives' various leads and efforts to break the case, presenting the investigation in all its disarray, without Bugliosi's streamlining. The 33 pages on the Tate murders, first homicide investigation progress report, dated to the end of August 1969. Much of them was workmanlike, describing the activities of the victims in the days leading to their deaths, the chronology of the discovery of the bodies, the recovery of evidence, and so on. When the investigators speculated on the hows and whys, I sat up a bit. They focused on the possibility that Billy Doyle, Charles Tacco, and others had initiated a vengeful massacre after Frakowski welched on a drug deal. The second homicide investigation progress report came six weeks later, describing the battery of polygraphs and interrogations through which investigators concluded they hadn't found the killers yet. I'd expected to see names like Altabellis and Melchers everywhere in the two Tate reports. But I was wrong. Melcher wasn't mentioned once, and Altabelli was only referenced in passing. If investigators had looked into the possibility that the man who owned the house, or its most recent previous occupant, had anything to do with the murders, there was no sign of their efforts here. As intriguing as these reports were, they were kind of a letdown, and other reporters had already gotten them. If I wanted something new, really new, I'd have to keep pressing. I decided to call Mike McGann, the retired cop who lived in Idaho. If Nelson was right, he'd have a stockpile of documents that dwarfed the collection in my hands. Everything in Vince Bugliosi's book is wrong, McGann told me on the phone. I was the lead investigator on the case. Bugliosi didn't solve it. Nobody trusted him. McGann spoke in gruff sentences, sometimes no more than a word or two, always a breath away from hanging up on me. I wanted to know more. But McGann, like others close to the case, expected to be compensated for his time, and even more so for his papers. He had the records, he told me, but they were available only for a price. That effectively shut down the conversation. I kept calling McGann, who was willing to tolerate my curiosity, to a point. I wanted to know about Melcher, Wilson, Jacobson, and Altabelli. What had they told the cops, and when? What about Carol Wilson and Carol Jacobson, Greg's wife? McGann said he hadn't gone through the files in years, but he'd look, if he had a chance. Two months later, during our sixth conversation, he still hadn't agreed to show me anything for free. McGann said that he had 190 written summaries of the interviews by the Tate detectives. Some were only half a page long. Most were a page or two. A few were longer. There were no interviews of Melcher, Jacobson, Wilson, or Altabelli. But there were interviews with Carol Jacobson and Carol Wilson. He pulled out the latter dated August 15, 1969, and started to read a portion over the phone. But soon he stopped and raised his voice. Are you taping this? I'm not going to go for that. I turned off the tape, but he refused to read any more. Before he totally lost patience, I asked if he could tell me one last thing. The date of the Carol Jacobson interview. He leafed through the pages. 
August 10, he said. The day after the bodies were discovered. That meant that both wives, Jacobson's and Wilson's, the two Carols, as Altabelli called them, had spoken to police within a week of the murders. Why not their husbands? And why not Melcher or Altabelli, given their close ties to the CLO home? Where were those interviews? Revisiting CLO Drive One night, after taking Altabelli out to dinner, I drove him home as I always did. He'd totaled his car after our first meeting. He was certain someone had run him off the road as a warning to stop speaking to me. And since then I'd become his de facto chauffeur. What, the good car in the shop? He'd always say. Our evenings together usually ran to six or eight hours, without Altabelli requesting impromptu stops at the supermarket or at a bar for a nightcap. We were close to Benedict Canyon that night, so I took us back to the valley that way. I used to drive this way back to CLO, he said, beginning to reminisce about the happiest period of my life. When I asked if he'd mind if we drove up to the house, he said, sure, why not? I sensed some reluctance in his answer. Cresting the final hill, we proceeded in silence down the narrow road, stopping at the gated entrance to what had once been 10050 CLO Drive. The house had been raised in 1994. Erected in its place was Villa Bella, an Italianate mansion of concrete and marble behind a tall, ostentatious gate that concealed most of it from the street. I want to see what number they put on my mailbox, Rudy said, suddenly irritated. Where is my mailbox? I maneuvered the car beside it. 10066, Altabelli said, reading the numbers. They had it changed. His voice cracked. We had such a great view, he said, gazing from my passenger seat at the sliver of space beyond the gate. It's all so cold looking now. My house was so warm and cozy. His voice broke again and his breathing was shallow, like he was gasping for air. Let's go he said after a long pause. Back up, back up, now, he said. When we were already halfway down Cielo, he shouted again, just go. We drove back to his apartment in silence. At home, with about a half dozen stray cats greeting him outside, Altabelli perked up, kneeling down to pet each one and calling them all by name. Inviting me in, he apologized for what had happened back at Cielo. It was the first time he'd returned since he'd left ten years before. I lived in that house twenty-five years, four months, and thirty-eight hours, he said. Now he lived in a converted garage in a neighborhood known for its gang activity. Hanging over his desk was a framed photo of the house from the mid-sixties and a watercolor painting of the front gate. Also framed was a letter from Bugliosi, commending him for his testimony at the trial. Riffling through old snapshots on his desk, he handed me fading photographs of celebrities, all taken at 10050 Cielo Drive. The last one was of Terry Melcher passed out on top of the same desk Altabelli was presently seated at. Melcher's hand gripped an empty bottle of liquor. Booze and pills. Altabelli said. The photo was taken when Melcher was staying with him at the house after the murders. In November of that year, when police told Altabelli that Manson was responsible for the murders, the first thing he did was call the two Carols. I said because of their husbands, I was stuck with all of this. I was left in the lurch. They knew what was happening at the house. Terry was the instigator of the whole thing. Altabelli seemed to be toying with the idea of letting me in on something bigger. He did this a lot. A seemingly offhand remark would complicate his entire portrait of the period. Terry talked about Manson all the time, he said. He thought he was wonderful. He asked me to manage him. But hadn't Terry said he wanted nothing to do with him? Terry stalked Manson. They thought they had Jesus Christ. Later. When I got transcripts of the trials, 
I'd see that Altabelli wasn't just embroidering. On the stand, he'd said that Melcher, along with Wilson and Jacobson, had talked to me on many occasions about Mr. Manson and his philosophy, his way of living and how groovy it was. Tellingly, in his own testimony, Melcher acted as if he hardly knew the man behind this groovy philosophy. Presented with a photo of Manson, he told a grand jury, I don't know him, but I think I have seen him at Dennis Wilson's house. Later, he revised this story, still stressing that he'd met Manson no more than three times. In other words, even at the time, Melcher's and Altabelli's stories weren't straight. Thinking of my talk with Mike McGann, I asked Altabelli if detectives had interviewed him after the murders. Of course they had, he said. He even remembered when. It had been on the day of the Tate and Sebring funerals at his lawyer's office. At the trial, he'd testified to the same thing. Following his lawyer's instructions, he reminded me, he hadn't said anything to the police about Manson. I told Altabelli that McGann had said there was no record of his interview. He was as baffled as I was. It might surprise you. With McGann stonewalling me, I paid a visit to Stephen Kay of the Los Angeles DA's office, thinking he might be able to point me toward more documents. Kay had helped Bugliosi prosecute the case in 1970, joining the trial midway through a career-making turn for the young lawyer. In the ensuing decades, Kay had served as the government's most prominent voice against Manson and the family, appearing at their parole hearings to argue against their release. He was, after Bugliosi, the legal world's leading expert on the family. I met Kay at his office in Long Beach. When I turned the subject to Melcher, he volunteered something else I'd never heard. Manson and Watson attended a party at the Cielo house when Terry and Candy Bergen lived there, he said. He was confident about this. The information first came out during the trial for Tex Watson, who'd been tried separately from the other family members. Kay had confirmed it with Greg Jacobson. He thought it was another reason that Manson had chosen the Cielo house for the murders. When he sent Watson and the girls there, he noted that, Tex knows the layout of the place. And yet Melcher, in his testimony, had said that he never once saw Watson inside his house. Melcher doesn't want to have anything to do with this. You'll never get to talk to Melcher or Candace Bergen, Kay told me. Kay didn't believe that the LAPD had really destroyed their files on the case. For one thing, he said Bugliosi had borrowed what he needed to write Helter Skelter and then, conveniently, never returned anything. Bugliosi had seen earlier than anyone that the Manson trial was going to be his meal ticket, Kay said. He took the ethically dubious step of installing his writing partner, Kurt Gentry, in the courtroom every day to watch the proceedings in real time. Gentry was working on the book that would become Helter Skelter before anyone was even convicted. The sensationalism only inflamed Bugliosi's hubris. At one point, he grabbed Kay's arm in the courtroom and said to him, Steve, aren't I great? Do you know anyone as great as me? And Bugliosi was still dining out, literally, on his Manson stories. The case continued to earn him a handsome income in royalties and public speaking appearances. I was curious about those who hadn't made out so well people still living in the shadow of these crimes, who'd been broken by the tumult of the late 60s. They'd have no vested interest in preserving the official narrative. Through a series of Los Angeles attorneys, I tracked down Irving A. Kanarek, Manson's defense attorney. I'd been warned that his was a sad story. But I wasn't prepared for the dire straits I'd find him in. Kanarek comes across as a ridiculous figure in Helter Skelter. Bugliosi portrays him as an erratic, bombastic blowhard whose obstructionist tactics earned him opprobrium from every corner of the legal world. The book devotes many pages to his history of indiscretions in the courtroom. By the available evidence, 
Bugliosi wasn't exaggerating here. Kanarek really was a reviled, difficult lawyer, and his conduct in the Manson case bore this out. According to legend, Manson wanted the worst trial lawyer in Los Angeles. Someone told him that Kanarek was his man. He objected nine times during Bugliosi's opening statement alone. By day three, he'd racked up an impressive 200 objections. The judge jailed him twice for contempt. Bugliosi conceded that Kanarek could be effective, even eloquent at moments. But this didn't stop him from calling Kanarek, in court and in helter-skelter, the Tuscanini of tedium. I met this Tuscanini standing on the sidewalk in Tony Newport Beach. It was 80 degrees out, but he shuffled up in an oversized winter coat and threadbare sneakers, lugging a battered briefcase held together with twine. Newspapers and plastic bags were poking out. Short and stooped, Kanarek had an unkempt, patchy gray beard. His hands and face were streaked with dirt, as if he hadn't bathed for weeks. There were sores on his body. He was missing most of his teeth. Once Kanarek learned I had a car, he asked me to drive him to a Barnes & Noble, where the cashier handed him a copy of the Los Angeles Times and sent him on his way. It was the previous day's paper, he told me. That's why he didn't have to pay for it. Then we got lunch outside at Santa Monica Seafood, a relatively upscale chain. Kanarek struck me as sharp but eccentric. His explosive volume led diners at two other tables to relocate indoors. He'd shout things like, Manson didn't kill anyone. He's the one who should have gotten immunity, or all Charlie wanted to do was screw girls. He didn't know they were going to murder those people. Most of his diatribes took on Bugliosi, for whom he had endless epithets. Liar, cheat, crook, conman, adulterer, stalker, woman beater. Son of a bitch. And worse, he shouted, causing another table to flee, an indicted perjurer who used his influence to be acquitted during his trial. When I asked if Kanarek was paid to defend Manson, he smiled wryly and said that he was, but that confidentiality prevented him from revealing by whom. It would be big news, he said. It might surprise you. If Kanarek had a benefactor, Another lawyer later told me, that white knight wasn't generous. Kanarek apparently spent most of the trial living out of his car and sleeping in the press room at the courthouse. Over the ten years prior to our meeting, Kanarek had discovered his wife was cheating on him. He'd wandered into traffic and been struck by a car. He'd suffered a nervous breakdown and spent time in a mental institution. He'd lost his law firm, his license to practice, and his life savings. Now he was living on social security at a motel in Costa Mesa, the next town over. After lunch, I offered to drive him back. He took me up on it. But could I take him on a few more stops before we parted ways? A few more stops turned into two harrowing hours in my 1988 Acura. Kanarek screamed at me for missing turns that he'd told me to take just as we were passing them. We drove in circles around Orange County, until, to my horror, he announced that he'd decided to accompany me back to L.A., which meant two more hours in the car with him, during rush hour traffic. Almost as soon as we pulled onto the freeway, he was ranting again. When he said again that Bugliosi was an indicted perjurer, I asked him to explain. Belittling me for not having done my homework, Kanarek said that during the Manson trial, someone had leaked the rumor about Manson's celebrity hit list to a journalist named Bill Farr, who'd published it in violation of the court's gag order. The hit list scoop must have come from one of the lawyers on the case. They were the only ones with access to it. With the jury out of the courtroom, the judge made the attorneys swear under oath that they hadn't slipped the information to Farr, who'd refused to reveal his source. All six attorneys denied having done it. After the trial, the judge, still suspicious, 
impaneled a grand jury to investigate the incident. They indicted two of the attorneys for lying. One was Dae Shin, Susan Atkins's defense attorney. The other was Bugliosi. Read the grand jury transcript, Canarek shouted. The state decided to prosecute the case. But if Bugliosi was convicted of perjury, it would jeopardize the verdicts in the Manson trial. And the DA's office couldn't stand for that. They got the judge to dismiss the charges on a technicality. They colluded, that is, to protect the convictions from the longest, most expensive criminal trial in U.S. history. It was a sweetheart deal, don't you see? Canarek shouted. His spittle sprang my face. It wasn't mentioned in Helter Skelter, I said. Of course it wasn't, Canarek scoffed. Neither was the fact that Bugliosi stalked his milkman and beat up his mistress. I should look up those cases, too. Both of which, he said, had been taken care of because of Bugliosi's political clout. He's a criminal, he shouted, and dangerous, too. I thought Canarek was unstable, so I didn't put much stock in his stories. I was relieved when we got to Hollywood. I wouldn't have to endure any more of his delusions. As he gathered his things and got out, I started to worry about him. It occurred to me that he might have been homeless. I offered him some cash, but he waved it away, asking me instead to promise that I'd look into his claims about Bugliosi. I watched him disappear into the crowd on the low-rent end of Hollywood Boulevard. Later that year, when my relationship with Bugliosi began to sour, I'd find that everything he said was true. Coda I'm not the Oracle. I'd been sending progress reports to Premier. The magazine's editor-in-chief, Jim Meigs, was hooked on the story. He was as invested as I was. In the middle of May 1999, the editors agreed to extend my deadline a second time. That meant the piece would be too late for the anniversary of the murders, but it didn't matter, they told me, as long as I could deliver something big. I was relieved, at least in the short term. In the long term, I was starting to feel the pressure of having to produce something mind-blowing. I had to get it right. And to do that, I had to push harder on my sources, find new ones, and most critically find more of the documents generated during the investigation. Having heard so often that Terry Melcher would never talk to me, I knew one thing I could do to set my story apart, get Terry Melcher to talk to me. I'd gotten his number, but I didn't want to use it until I was sure I had some good questions to ask him. I figured I'd only get one shot. I finally called him in early June. He was articulate, and from the start, irritable and distrustful. I get so many goddamn calls about this crap from all over the world, he said. I don't know anything about this shit. Rudy Altabelli called me for the first time in 10 or 15 years a few days ago and told me the story of the bullets. I don't know if that's real, but you know, so what? What are you going to do? At the time of the murders, I asked, did you suspect Manson? I had no idea. No idea whatsoever. I used to audition three or four bands a week. They all looked the same. They all looked like the cast of hair. How many times did you meet Manson? Once, very briefly, at Dennis Wilson's house, and the second time at the ranch. But I've spoken to people who claim that you knew them a lot better. I really didn't, Melcher said. Why had he moved out of the Cielo house so suddenly? It was totally ridiculous to pin that on his fear of Manson, he said. He still blamed his housekeeper, Ruth Simmons. It's just hard to believe that someone as powerful as you would move out of his house rather than fire the maid, I said. It's really true. I just couldn't figure out what else to do. Plus, his mom had vacated their Malibu beach house and he thought it was a good idea to live there to prevent it from falling into disrepair. Next, I probed his friendship with Dennis Wilson. How could he dodge the fact that both of them, plus Greg Jacobson, should have suspected Manson as soon as they learned of the murders? Melcher said his friendship with Wilson had dissolved around that time, 
as Wilson became increasingly reticent. The rumor was that Wilson knew that they were killing people, Melcher said. He was so freaked out, he just didn't want to live anymore. He was afraid. And he thought he should have gone to the authorities, but he didn't. And then the rest of it happened. So he was in some way just tremendously guilty. Now, I don't know that that's true. And that guilt doesn't apply to you, too? I asked. I don't think so. Christ, if they wanted to get me, all my doors were wide open that whole summer. After the murders, he'd heard that Wilson met with Bugliosi and all the DAs in the state of California in one great big room, and that Wilson had managed to eke out only one sentence about the family. Well, we hung around and smoked a little pot and sang some songs. Period. That was it. That was his entire statement. Why would Vince settle for that, I asked. I don't know. He thought he'd just put him on the stand. But he didn't put him on the stand, I said. This was something I'd been thinking about a lot. Dennis Wilson would have been a star witness, since he'd known Manson so well and had seen his violent tendencies. If he didn't want to testify, Bugliosi could have subpoenaed him. He did it to force testimony from plenty of others. Why not Wilson? Well, they thought he was nuts. And by that time he was, Melcher said. He had a hard time separating reality from fantasy. Seriously. He had inventions. He tried to sell me once a new invention that was the size of a cigarette box. An anti-gravity device. You kept it in your glove compartment, but when you get into a traffic jam, you just turn it on and fly right over the other cars. He really thought it worked. I had more questions, but I could feel him growing impatient. I'm not the oracle about this thing, Melcher said. I just know that it was an incredible pain in the ass. That pain would continue. Listening back to my tape of the call, I'd realized that I'd caught Melcher in a lie, one that implicated Bugliosi, and gave me my best shot yet at proving that both of them were involved in a cover-up.